0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of our Monday morning live devotional streaming on Facebook with video, also being able to be found on our uh, Sovereign Hope Church podcast, wherever your podcasts are found. Um, We did. I've teased this a couple times. We did actually start recording. Uh, our new podcast series, which is going to be on the same podcast channel right now, so still pod, uh, Hope Podcast, called Discipleship Discussions. Um, and I'm really excited for that. We interviewed Amy Joseph as our first one. Um, we've got uh, we had some audio issues as our first one using a new software, uh, and so Johnny's going to try to make that uh, a little more clean. And then I'm going to record hopefully a couple more this week, and we will start trickling those out within the next few weeks. But really excited for that because one thing I've realized is when it comes to uh, I've realized for a long time with evangelism that you could read a bunch of evangelism books and take a lot of evangelism classes. But what's most helpful when it comes to doing evangelism is just hearing stories of how people have evangelized um, or how they were evangelized. And you're like, hey, I could do that. That's not outrageous. And the same thing's true with discipleship. And so we're, these interviews are designed to just get stories of people's encounters with discipleship and what that looks like in their life so that we might see hey, this isn't uh, rocket science. Uh, God has given us everything he needs to do discipleship. And I hope that that podcast series, Discipleship Discussions, will be helpful for you. Um, It's enjoyable for me to talk to these people. And so uh, keep your eye out for that. Uh, We are continuing to work through the gospel accounts. We are in Matthew 24. Technically, um, today's Uh, reading in the F260 Bible reading plan is the last half of Matthew 24. uh, And Friday's reading was the first half, but we're actually going to do all of it today, um, because it's all kind of really similar in tone. Uh, And what we do see is the first half of Matthew 24 uh, begins to deal with, well, I'll say this, I'll back up. Uh, Matthew 24 is, and continuing through Matthew 25, It's kind of apocalyptic literature woven into the gospel. And meaning apocalyptic, meaning it's talking about uh, kind of these future-oriented events. It uses lots of uh, descriptive language, lots lots of illustrations in here. Uh, And it could be hard to understand. And especially uh, today, you know, it's rainy. It's 60 degrees. It's kind of groggy. It's a Monday. This is probably the last passage you wanted to read on a Monday morning. And so when we read these, I hope today that we can kind of learn how we read apocalyptic literature in a devotional sense um, because there's a lot to be mined here. Um, There's all sorts of interweaving. Jesus is actually interweaving three events uh, in this passage. He's talking... There are things that are fulfilled from this passage in the year 70 AD uh, when Rome comes and sacks Jerusalem and destroys the temple. There are things he's talking about that uh, begin at the second coming of Jesus. And there are things that happen at the sign of the end of the age, meaning uh, shortly after the second coming of Jesus. And so there are levels of prophecy at all three of those points um, and all of them foreshadow and interact with each other. And so you could spend a lot of time Uh, we preached through Matthew a couple years ago and I preached through this passage. If you want a more full, uh, uh, exposition of this text, you go find that online. Uh, so you could spend a lot of time getting into the weeds of this text, but what do we do when we encounter this? As just Christians wanting to relate to God. We're not wanting to write, um, a treatise or a book on the, the orientation of events that are to come. What do we do with this? And so, uh, what we really want to do is ask, why is this in here? That's the one of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself when reading the Bible is why is, uh, so we talk about kind of uh, multiple authors in here, multiple speakers. One, Jesus is speaking. Why is Jesus in the book of Matthew sharing this teaching now? And secondly, why is Matthew as kind of the one aggregating Jesus' teaching and putting it in his book? Why is he including it in here? And there's actually a third. Um, author. And that is why has God preserved this for us in his scripture. And so we have the characters in the story, we have the person who's recording the story, and then we have God, who second Peter tells us writes all this story through the power of his Holy Word, uh, or the power of his Holy Spirit. And so just briefly, I'm going to give a summary here before we dive in. But there's kind of two distinct halves in this text that kind of split between verse 31 and 32. And the first half, all of this has kind of divine stuff that's happening, even the destruction of the temple, God is doing at his own hand. Um, But the first half kind of deals with uh, signs near this day of destruction, the second coming of Jesus, and how humans are going to interact with each other and the persecution the church might face. And then in the last half, it's actually how the Christians are relating to God in this sense. So the first half is how humans are relating to each other in this time of conflict, and the second half focuses more on how Christians are to relate to God during this trying season uh, that Jesus is talking about. And so just a a quick summary for us is all this has happened after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. Um, He's kind of gone into the temple. He's seen that it is not the way it should be. He says that they have made my father's house, which is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations, and they've made it into a den of thieves. And so his first encounter in Jerusalem isn't great. And now Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving his the temple, and he points back to the temple as so they're on a little hill outside Jerusalem. And he says, you see this temple? And this temple was this token piece for the Jews. It was the, uh, um, for Missoula, it would be the, uh, uh, the Karis Park or the main hall at the university, something that signified a bunch of pride and identity. And he says, look at that temple, I tell you, that this will not be left, that one day um, not one stone will be left upon itself that will not be thrown down. And then the disciples begin to ask him, he says, Hey, when is this going to happen? Uh, when is the sign of your coming and the end of your age? And then he begins to warn them, and he warns them. Uh, to not be led astray by false teachers. And so what's interesting is there's a lot of overlap between this Matthew 24 and what we've been talking about the last two weeks in second Peter chapter two and chapter three. Um, And I think that's going to be an important point when we come later on in our three places that we're looking, looking in, looking out and looking up. Uh, And then he talks about this, uh, Persecution that's going to happen. They will deliver you. These are um kind of the hostile forces of the day. They will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so right before that, we see this physical, um, uh kind of natural stuff. There's going to be uh wars, there's going to be famines and earthquakes, and now we see that there's going to be this turmoil. And all of this is going to happen connected to the disciples' question of your, your coming and the end of the age. And then he begins to talk about this big ominous term called the abomination of desolation, um, spoken of in Daniel. And he's assuming some level of understanding of Daniel there when he says, let the reader understand they should know this um, as kind of a token prophetic event that Daniel prophesied about. And he talks about that this cataclysmic event is going to happen and people are going to flee Jerusalem. Um, and during that time, as people are fleeing and there's all sorts of confusion, there's going to be more and more people claiming to be the Messiah. The Messiah is over here. This Christ is over here. And he's saying, do not believe them. He's, uh, in this time of chaos, people are going to be looking for saviors and proclaiming saviors. And he's saying, be careful. You don't follow a false savior. I am coming back and I will let you know when I'm coming back. So don't follow things or people who claim to be me. And then he says immediately after the tribulation in verse 29, So now here's this transition into um, kind of the divine aspect of what's going on. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. And now he begins to use this series of illustrations to explain what this, what Peter calls the day of the Lord, what Jesus is talking about here about his second coming uh, is about. And he says, first, this fig tree talking about signs. uh, When a fig tree becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know uh, that summer is near. And so when these things begin to happen, like all of these wars and these famines and the abomination of desolation and persecution, when those begin to happen, you're going to know that the end is near. But Jesus says immediately after that, when he's saying, you might perceive it's near, he says this, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only And then he goes back to Noah. And what's interesting is the biblical authors always equate Noah with judgment um, and just kind of shows how much we've removed ourselves from reading scripture rightly, where for us kind of the story of Noah is about these cute animals and nursery rhymes and Sunday school stories. Uh, And it should be taught and it should be known, but it should remind people that God judges, but God also saves. God punishes sin, but God makes a way for the righteous through his covenant. And he talks about the days of Noah, where the people were unaware that the flood was coming. And because of that, they kept feasting and partying and, and uh, gallivanting around, unaware of the destruction that was to come to them. And he says, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. And then he gives kind of this, these illustrations that show it's going to be sudden, and you're not going to know what it is. There's two men in a field, and one will be taken. One woman will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming But know this, and so here's another illustration, that if the master of a house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man. And then he gives another illustration in verse 45, and this is how he closes out this passage. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them them their food at the proper times? I'm going to read that sentence again because it's early and I didn't read it well. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And they see the opposite. If this servant does not care for God's household, does not care for the servants, but begins to beat them, uh, then he will be like a hypocrite. He'll be chopped in pieces and put out with the hypocrites in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So not the most chipper reading you can have on a groggy Monday morning. And yet this is God's good word for us. Um, It's always a good test of our heart when we encounter passages of scripture um, that we kind of wish we weren't reading because it shows that there's a problem with our hearts. Um, and it's God's grace that we encounter this and start to think on on it in a new way and ask God for help. I hope that as you read this, this morning, uh, when you encounter difficulties that you didn't just say, well, I read it, I'm done. Let's go. But that you actually prayed. You prayed that God would help you understand this and pull from it. Things that are good, all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable for us. And so what do we do with this? Well, um, let's begin by looking up. And one thing that is always really helpful, and so remember there's la- there's layers of study when we do scripture. Right? There's this casual devotional study where we're trying to get the sense of what the Word is doing and apply it to our lives. There's a more in-depth study where we're spending time uh, kind of drilling down into a text, maybe reading commentaries, and then there's another level where we're really getting into the grammar of what's going on, trying to understand the arguments, and a healthy diet of Uh, Bible reading includes all of those things, Uh, but we're talking here about that lowest uh, denominator. Which I would say for you, I was helped by a study Bible this morning in looking at this. Like, what do we take from this? A study Bible is really helpful. If you don't have a study Bible, you can probably find one for for free online. Um, I'm using one right now that's a Charles Spurgeon study Bible. Maybe you've picked that up with some of my Spurgeon quotes I'm using. The ESV study Bible is great as well. My wife has the biblical theology study Bible, which I didn't look at today because it's going to have robust notes on this passage that I didn't have time to go through. But study Bibles are a great resource. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. On Monday morning, when when we're looking at this, we're spending, you know, 20 minutes before the kids get up and we have to try to get them out, out the door to school. We just want to say, what is this clearly talking about? We've got all of this imagery. We've got th- potentially three events that are happening. One that has happened, one that will happen, one that will happen after that. And this, this imagery that is um, really, especially in verses 29 through 31, uh, really hard to understand this melting of the world that's coming. But this is where we zoom back and we say, can we, we understand why Jesus is doing this? What does Jesus want us to see here? Well, when we look up, I think we see two things primarily one, we see the certainty of Jesus's return. This is what we talked about yesterday in 2 Peter chapter 3. Jesus is coming back. I didn't do a word study because I didn't have time. But if you, I'm in the ESV right now, if you go look at how many times the word coming is in here, it's probably a decent amount. Uh, the disciples are asking about Jesus' coming. Jesus is describing what's going to happen at his coming. The false prophets are going to say that he has already come. Jesus is coming back. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to understand that uh, we cannot live our lives unaware. And that's why he uses the example of um, the person whose house got broken into. Uh, We just had someone steal a weed eater out of our shed in our backyard. And for the majority of my life, I didn't even consider this. I've lived in Montana most of my life. it's not Missoula specifically, not a huge crime rate. But now this has happened. I see everything in my yard and I'm just aware that it can be stolen and there's a sense where when Jesus begins to speak of this to the disciples he wants to live he wants them to live with that nagging awareness in their mind that Jesus is coming back that there is something beyond this life that is of utmost importance and it shapes how we live and we'll talk about that in a moment so the first thing we want to see is is we need to be aware that Jesus is coming back and that might seem like an assumption um, but go back and listen to the sermon yesterday, if you didn't, and see, I give three ways where if we forget this truth that Jesus is coming back, that we actually live our lives uh, in a way that functionally denies that. It leads us to sin. It leads us to pursue the lusts of the world. And it leads us to live for a legacy of ourself instead of a legacy for the coming King of glory. And so that's important. We see that Jesus is coming back uh, with great certainty. But then one other thing we see is why is he telling this to us? Uh, He's got the heart of his disciples and the heart of his church in mind. And just listen to how Jesus is speaking and what he is speaking at this time. So verse four says this, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus is speaking this so that we would not be led astray. He's speaking this, that we might be kept by him. Verse six, he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus is writing so that we would not be alarmed, that we would not be fearful beyond what he has allowed us to be, not be anxious with worry, not be sinning in our fear. Verse 22 says this, and if those days, these are the days of uh, the abomination, abomination of desolation, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But listen to what he says. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus is here writing like things are going to get bad. But in the midst of the badness, God is still treasuring and caring for his elect. It's actually for your sake that this day, this judgment day, will not continue forever. It's your, It's for your sake that this abomination of desolation will in some way be hedged for the sake of God's elect. You are not unthought of in the mind of God when it comes to future events. Also, look with me at verse 25. Uh, see, I've told you beforehand, Jesus is preparing us for this. Verse 31 says this. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Wherever you are, whenever this happens, you are not beyond God's grasp. He is prioritizing the salvation of the elect. Whenever this day of judgment comes, Jesus cares about you, regardless of whether you might be someone who is imprisoned in the outer edges of Mongolia for your faith. This hope is your hope. Jesus wants you to know that. And then also look at verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Why is Jesus writing this stuff for him? So that we might see his heart for us. He wants us to not be led astray. He wants us to not be fearful. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to understand that whatever happens, God has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten his elect church. And this is for our good that he tells us this. Because it might be less weird for him to just leave this out. But he would be neglecting a warning that is meant to curb our actions and actually comfort us. Jesus is giving this message because even for the disciples, where in the span of uh, you know uh, several decades, they're going to see in 70 AD, um, those who make it there, they're going to see the destruction of the temple. And they are going to be ones who themselves can tell their church, Jesus says this isn't the end. This isn't the end of the story of God's redemption. Um, that he still cares for you. And even when we look to future events and things get hard, we could still say, God wants you to be prepared for this. Jesus is still caring for you in all of this. It makes me think of Psalm 23, um, where Jesus is really embodying this Psalm uh, that David says, and he's doing it to his disciples, where he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So even when times are hard, Jesus is near. We're never apart from Jesus, no matter how crazy and chaotic our world seems. That's the hope. That's what we learn about Jesus. Jesus is near. He is for us, even in the thick of what the world will bring as the worst near the end. So that's looking up. We see uh, the certainty of Jesus' return. We see his heart for his disciples. Um, but looking in, you know, what, are, what do we do with this text? We see what Jesus is doing. What do we do with it? Um, well, I think primarily uh, texts like this call us to examine our hearts and not our calendars. And I want to be really careful with this because there are a lot of um, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, discipling, evangelizing Christians who love getting into trying to draw out dates and times and events. And so I don't want to um, besmirch that. But I think it's unique that whenever the Bible is talking about this, whether it's Jesus here, whether it's Peter, whether it's Paul in Thessalonians, whether it's John in Revelation, they're less concerned about people getting out a pen and paper to examine the dates that are coming. What they're more concerned with is how you examine your own heart. This day is going to come. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. This day is going to come. The question is, is your heart going to be ready for this day? He wants us to examine our own hearts. And what's interesting is, so in verse 29 through 31, he begins to say, well, these are going to be the signs that it's coming. These are when you're going to know it's near the end. But then he says this in verse uh Thirty-six, but concerning that day, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so here we have Jesus saying, "I don't know this day." And yet sometimes we think, "Well, if we have the right newspaper and we're reading the right sources and we see the right things going on on a global level, we can know the day." But the truth is, we can't. Jesus is saying, "It's coming." absolutely, 100%, you just need to be ready. I don't even know the day. In Jesus' humanity, there's this interesting dynamic in the Trinity where Jesus is fully God, yet in his humanity, God has not chosen to reveal to him when this day will come. And so we shouldn't think that we could do it. And we should think that Jesus, in not telling us this day, is still working for our good, that God has not given us that information because he loves us, because he wants us to be wiser for it. And so the point of this is to prepare our hearts. Are we those who are living life in light of the end, not living for our own glory, not living for the lust of the world, not living in a rejection of what God has said, but instead submitting ourselves, knowing that God is holding the history of this world in his hand, and he is building it to a climax where Christ will come back, the earth will be judged, and his elect will be granted new life through Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth. We need to be mindful of that at all times. Uh, I played tennis in high school, and uh, on tennis courts, you've got these wind screens which are are pretty much exactly what they sound like. They're giant screens that hang down, um, made of thicker material, so you can't really see through them unless you're up really close. So when you're on the tennis court, um, you can't see because of the distance, but uh, the person who's standing right up next to the screen can see through. And I was uh, playing in a match, and I was getting really frustrated this day in particular, and I looked around and I saw that my coach wasn't there. And I looked around and I didn't see really anyone else there. So I took my racket and I threw it down, It bounced and had a really, good, a really good soothing effect on my soul. Um, but then I heard the voice of my mother who was standing behind the wind sh- uh, screen. And she called me over to her and she said, if you throw your racket again, I don't care what your coach does. I'm pulling you from this match. And I've never been so fearful Of my mother in my life. Uh, I never understood the power she had over me besides seeing my mother say that she was going to pull me out of a tennis match where she had no legitimate authority to do it. But I believed it and I believe it would have happened. And here's the deal is our life throws up wind screens all over the place. And because of our distance, we can't see clearly what's coming. But what we do know is that God is behind it and he is watching. That's one of the things Jesus is talking about is you need to be ready for this. And look at verses 11 through 14. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of law and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so, because of these false teachers, Jesus is saying exactly what Peter recognizes in his church in uh, the late 60s A.D. Uh, is. These false teachers are going to lead them to lawlessness. They're going to begin to sin because they think God's judgment is lapsed or not coming. But they also will become loveless towards each other. It will cause people to not care for the spiritual well-being, the eternal well-being of those who are around. But look at what he says next. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And so as we examine our hearts we see that what we will do to endure is to be those who do not practice lawlessness and those whose love does not grow cold. And what this actually shows us is he's talking about things getting hard. Things are going to get harder for Christians. And yet what Jesus is saying is that the hard nature of life nearer to the end actually shows the easy need for the gospel, because we're going to see how things are getting harder and harder. Where for Christians, uh, the, it's going to become easier to see that we need to endure. We need to dedicate ourselves to this work of the gospel. And that's a common grace God gives us in suffering is oftentimes in suffering, the easiest path is not necessarily, or the heart, excuse me, the right path is not the easiest path, but it's easy to see that. Does that make sense? That when suffering exists, we are reminded of what is of utmost importance and what will truly save. And as things are getting hard, Jesus is saying the church will endure. You will see how you are to act. And those who endure in this way will be those who save, who are saved. This is where it comes to looking out verses 45 through 46. Jesus says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. And so here we have, you see this, the effect of the false prophets earlier on where they're causing people to sin. They're causing love to be less. But then in contrast to that, Jesus talks about the faithful servant whom God sets over his household. I think he's speaking specifically to the disciples at this time saying that I've set you kind of over the church, right? We see this in Matthew 16. uh, Jesus says to Peter, uh, uh, you are Peter. And on this rock that is his confession of Christ, I will build my church. Um, And so he's saying to his disciples, you're not to be a false teacher what you are to do as my disciples is to take the word I've given to you and to care for the rest of the people in their household, to not lord it over them, to not be a false teacher, to not lead them astray, to not cause them to fear, but to care for them and give them their food at the proper time. That is how you should work until the master comes back. And so for us, we see that the end times indicate that endurance is necessary. The end times provides a wonderful opportunity for the gospel to go forward, right? The gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come is what Jesus is saying. And so what are we to do? We are to be faithful stewards of the gospel in all of life. How does this shape the way we look out the way we live is this passage isn't describing how we should live then it's describing how we should live now. We should be eager to help others follow Christ in all of life through the gospel. We should set our lives to the hard work of discipleship and to evangelism. Why? Because we know that when the end comes, we need a hope greater than anything in this world. We know that judgment is coming. We know hostility is going to be here. We know there is going to be death. And yet there is one who is Lord over all of it. And we know his truth through his word. We have believed in his gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we want to faithfully serve Christ by serving Christ's household. That's what he says here. What does it look like to live like a faithful steward? What does it look like to look like a homeowner who is aware that a thief could come at any moment? You serve the household of God, which means there's this twofold thing. You are honoring the master by doing what he's called you to do, caring for the household. But then that caring for the household is actually caring for the household. It's helping those who are around you endure. It is feeding them with grace. It is reminding them of the gospel. It is going to the nations to proclaim the glory of God in closed missionary context. It is helping your kids follow Jesus uh, when school is hard. It is helping your your community group members or your church members, when it seems that the world is railing against them or sin is speaking loudly in your heart, you are caring for them with the hope of the gospel that Jesus will come back, that this will not be forever, that even though the nations will rage, we have a Christ who will one day gather his elect to him and hold them safely if they endure. There is hope for the Christian even in the hard times. So be ready and be prepared. We want to prepare others with a faith that endures as an effort to have a faith in which ourselves will endure, not faith in ourselves, but us having faith that will endure. Our faith is in Jesus, not in ourselves. So that's what we see in this text is Jesus is saying this because he loves us. And because he loves us, he wants us to labor with his gospel in the lives of those who are around us, even when things get hard and they will get hard. But Jesus' gospel is great and sufficient for us. So let me pray for us on this Monday morning that we would be those who wisely steward the gifts of grace that God has given us. So that we and our brothers and sisters in Christ might be those who endure, even if we happen to be around during these uh, great and terrifying times. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you are coming back. We pray for the many ways where we might neglect that doctrine and it might shape the way we live our lives and the desires we have. But we pray we would not forget it. And we pray that we remember that despite whatever happens between now and glory, that you are with us and you are desiring our hearts to endure. You are caring for us, calling us to not be deceived, not to be led astray, not to be fearful beyond measure, but instead to faithfully do the work of a disciple, calling others to the security of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good week.